Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. I'm very happy to be with you today and thank you for tuning in. It's our pleasure to have you with us. Today we are going to dig into the Bible and learn how to manage in tough times. Our panel for today, Joe, it's good to have you part of this. Thank you, Nick. Um, always a pleasure to be here. Will, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. Thank you, Nick. Denise, thank you for being part of the panel. Thank you, Nick. Um, I count it a privilege to be part of it. Brenton, it's good to have you with us today. Thank you, Nick. Uh, I'm sure this subject will be helpful for those who are listening. And Lydia, it's good to have you. Yes, thank you. I feel very blessed. And Len, thank you for joining us too. It's a privilege to share God's word and hello, listeners. Now, we have a full panel today, which is really great. It will be a good discussion, I hope. And uh, may every listener be blessed as we look into the Bible. Jerry, I'm coming back to you now. And thank you for preparing uh, for today. And you are going to facilitate. Uh, please take us through. Thank you, Nick. Hello, listeners. Our theme for this week's study is called Managing in Tough Times. I think most people would agree that these are tough times that we are living in. Sometimes it would seem as though our world is spinning out of control. We see and hear of wars, bloodshed, crime, immorality, natural disasters, pandemics, economic uncertainty, political corruption and more. There is a strong urge for individuals and families to think first of their own survival and it's understandable that much thought is given to seeking security in these uncertain times. With the regularity of clockwork, interest rates are raised and banks are swift to pass them on to their valued customers. Food prices keep going up and the money required to rent a home continues to soar. The cost of living is putting a lot of people under enormous pressure. Every day, we spend much of our time and energy focusing on how to pay the bills, how to feed the family and raise the children how to keep the wheels turning and meet our financial commitments. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed these very basic needs and then stated, Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. That's found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 32 and 33. So amid these trying times, when we need to lean on the Lord more than ever, there are some concrete steps based on biblical principles that we should follow. But first, can I ask Lydia, would you pray for us, please? Sure. Holy Father in heaven, thank you so much again for this opportunity to study about managing in tough times. You are our Father in good times and tough times. Thank you that you care for us by guiding us, teaching us, to learn how to live wisely for your glory and for our own good. Father, please, we invite you here with your holy presence to guide us, lead us, bless us with the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit, to know where to turn for security in uncertain times, in the way we live, in the way we spend our times, reserves, finances, to be for your only glory, because everything is yours. Father, 
Thank you for hearing us in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 to 22, we read the amazing account of how God was able to come to the rescue of his people when they were faced with certain destruction by what is described as a great multitude from Syria coming out against them. Talk about managing in tough times. It doesn't get any tougher when your life is on the line. Will, can you give us the details of this event? Who were the parties involved and how we arrived at the outcome of this impending disaster? Though this event occurred some 2,500 years ago, what important lessons can we learn from it if ever we should find ourselves in a well similar situation? Yes, Jerry, uh, King Jehoshaphat. Um, king Jehoshaphat was the son of a godly king, Asa, who led the nation of Judah out of idolatry and uh, back to worshipping God at the temple. Now, having a godly father who set a good example, Jehoshaphat maintained his devotion to God throughout his lifetime, and that brought him into God's favour and protection. And uh, the same came to the entire nation of Judah. His war against idolatry, I imagine, would have incited the wrath of Satan and this righteous king learned that three armies had amassed themselves against him from surrounding nations. Uh, These nations were Moab, Ammon, and the Edomites. He knew that he was up against an insurmountable odds. Far outnumbered and uh, with the kingdom of Judah unprepared, Jehoshaphat did the only thing that he could do, and that was to call for a national day of prayer. This involved bringing the entire populace to Jerusalem to humble themselves in prayer and fasting. And the whole story is told in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat's prayer was possibly the most sincere and desperate plea that anyone could make in such a situation. We're talking about tough times today, but listen to his prayer. We do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. That's 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. It was a desperate situation indeed, but God honored their faith and the remarkable annihilation of their idolatrous enemies will go down as one of the most significant proofs that uh, trust in God will never let us down in tough times. I thought I wouldn't give all the details there. It's a long piece, uh, Jerry. But I think uh, what we can learn from this story is no matter how tough times get, we can look to God and he will give us a solution and a way out and especially the support that we might need. Basically, uh, these three nations, Moab, Ammon and Edomites, they were all related to Israel. And uh, according to Jehoshaphat's prayer in Second Chronicles 20, they weren't coming to subjugate them. They were coming to dispossess them. There's a bit of a difference between the two. This was probably the time of Israel's, one of Israel's greatest emergencies, because in other cases, the Philistines, for instance, they simply ruled over the subjugated the people and ruled over them. But these people are actually coming to dispossess. And this is what Jehoshaphat says in his prayer to God. He says, Lord, these you gave us this land 
because of your promise. These people are coming to disinherit us. They're coming to kick us out. So it was rather more than simply we will be subjugated to another nation. I think we need to bear that in mind. But what Will said about um, we do not know what to do, but our eyes upon you, I, I think, as Will said, that's the lesson for today. I don't know if ever any of us have been in a situation like that. Probably not. But um, what I picked up from that also was that, uh, you know, they, they had a, a complete trust in God to deliver yes. them. It was genuine. It was complete. And uh, the situation was, it couldn't have gotten any worse when you think about it. And their only hope was in, in God's intervention. So a genuine faith put to practice, put into practice. And, uh, and we can learn from that because uh, there may come a time. In fact, we know that there will come a time uh, for God's people again where our only hope of salvation is when we put our complete and total trust in God. We now move to two more episodes in the Old Testament to teach a very important lesson about trusting God rather than our own ability or resources. The first one's found in First Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. Chapter 13, we find that Saul has a standing army of 3,000. Up until that point in time, Israel did not have a professional army. Saul had put together a professional army in chapter 13. He had 2,000 men, I believe, and Jonathan had 1,000. Um, Jonathan, it appears, at some previous time, had attacked the Philistine garrison at Geba, and that had really got under their skin. So now they had come out in force to deal with Israel. And Saul finds himself down from 3,000 men till the time the story that is mentioned here to 600 men. It's almost like Gideon, isn't it? <laughs> 32,000 down to 10,000 down to 300. Um, the difference, I believe, is Saul did, he just basically sat under the pomegranate trees with his 600 men who obviously quaking greatly. Whereas Jonathan said to his armor bearer, let's go over to the Philistine camp. And um, they went over to the Philistine camp and Jonathan made a very important statement. He said, God can save by many or by few. You've only got Jonathan and his armor bearer. Here's another point. Jonathan and Saul, according to this, were the only ones who had swords because um, the technology of the age, the Israelites had to actually go to the Philistines to have their plough shears sharpened and their axes and other things. So here's brave Jonathan, and I use the word brave. He said to his armour bearer, when we go over to the Philistine fort, if they tell us to come up to them, we will. If they don't, we'll just wait. And apparently the signal in Jonathan's mind was that if the, the Philistines invited them to come up to them, that would indicate to him that God was working on their behalf. What a brave man. And the end result was that he and his armour bearer climbed up, uh, slaughtered those that were in the garrison, and that uh, was a, a great deliverance. I think it's just a tragedy in some respects that Jonathan later had lost his life in battle against the Philistines. But yes. here in here yeah, in this yeah. particular instance, his statement, God is able to save, not by, it doesn't matter whether it's many or few, God is able to save. I think he had the same type of faith that Gideon had, except in this case, he didn't ask for a whole heap of tests. Mm -hmm. He simply trusted God. 
and said, let's go ahead. If they tell us to come up, we will. And that's the operative word, isn't it? Trusting God. His father, yes. by yeah. contrast, took matters in his own hand. He did. Twice. <laughs> and it was disastrous on both occasions. And, uh, and that's a very important thing to remember. Um, sometimes the Lord delays his answer to test our faith. He doesn't immediately, so to speak, come to the rescue. And um, we still have to keep trusting God, no matter what the situation. And, and I find that uh, Jonathan was uh, very different to his father. Interesting, isn't it, how different father and son can be? Now, uh, Denise, let's move on to First Chronicles chapter 21. Verses 1 to 14, which involves King David and his decision to number or count how many soldiers were in his army. Could you summarize these verses, Denise, and explain what's going on here? Sure, Jerry. In First Chronicles 21, we have uh, King David being tempted by Satan, said that he played on David's pride about his army and to take a census and to count uh, in all of um, Israel and Judah, how many men of military age they had in the country. Now, David had been involved in quite a few battles against various people. The most recent one had been against the Philistines. So he seems to be very uh, putting a lot of faith in his army rather than in God. And so he wants to count all of these men of military age. But his um, officer, Joab, warns him and says, this is against God to do this. Why should we worry about this? This shows a lack of faith. And if we do this, this is going, we're going to be guilty of sin. But David insisted. And so they go ahead and they make the census. They count. But God is very displeased with David and he sends him a message through, I guess he's a prophet, Gad and there is a text in the New Testament that says that whatever is not of faith is sin. And I guess this is a good example of this right here. And so David eventually realized that he had done the wrong thing and he asked God for forgiveness. But there was punishment brought upon David and brought upon the people. And God gave him three choices. For the punishment, do you want three years of famine, three months of successive defeats by attacking armies, or three days of an epidemic to sweep across the land? And David said, let the Lord decide. I don't want to fall into the hands of man. So the Lord sent an epidemic and wiped out 70,000 men. And then David built an altar to the Lord in a place where he specified you have to wonder how that played on his conscience throughout the rest of his life, that uh, his action caused that kind of result. 70,000 people. Uh, it's, it's quite astonishing, isn't it? It is um, astonishing. And yet here we are, David, a man after God's heart, um, didn't always fully trust God. And I guess that's the, that's the uh, danger, isn't it, when you become too powerful and, and too successful even. You, there's a danger of shifting your focus away from God. We've seen it in Solomon. His son started off so well, and look what happened to him. I just want to add uh, something here. We look at already two cases in the time of King Saul, and then uh, we also look at uh, in the time of King David. Both of these men, they were chosen by God with um, very good uh, abilities and capabilities. 
to be in the position where God put them. But the problem is, and this is the lesson which I like to draw out of these uh, two cases, that uh, when we're going through tough times, and this is our discussion today to manage in tough times, it's amazing how we change and it's amazing how we approach things differently and forgetting who's in control, forgetting who's putting us in in place for that time. And this was these two cases. Unfortunately, both of them just stuffed it up. And um, I don't know if this it's the case, particularly with with these two faithful men of God, you know, at least to start with. But it says that put somebody in power and you really see who they are. I think the the case of David, the wonderful thing about David is that he realized the mistakes he made and he repented. And that's the, the whole difference. They were all guilty, maybe one guilty than the other. I don't know how to classify that. But the difference was that they were able to recognize the shortcomings, the faults, and come before God and says, I stopped it up. Please forgive. And this is me. And maybe you, my dear friend, listening today, you may think that you stuffed it up. You may think that, okay, you started well and, but you stuffed it up. You know, it's a new beginning every single day. Brenton, you wanted to say something? Yes, there's a marked contrast between David and Saul that we were discussing earlier on. In this particular instance that uh, Denise has read, right at the end of it, when the destroying angel is going around, uh, God tells the destroying angel to stop. But David says, these people are innocent, Lord. Let the um, uh, punishment for this fall upon me and my family. Mm. Now, I contrast that with the situation of Saul that we discussed earlier on in chapter 13 and 14 of First Samuel. Saul's life was one constant, it's not my problem. It's not my fault. Mm. I don't I don't see any evidence of Saul genuinely repenting anyway through here david's highs and lows when you study the life of david his highs and lows his highs were very high and his lows were very low (laughs) and that gives me some hope and i'm sure as a panel it gives us hope that god still accepted him because as nick said he genuinely repented and he was willing to accept the consequences of the bad decisions Mm. saul was not willing to accept the consequences of the decision because it wasn't his fault yes indeed yeah, major difference. Okay, now I've got a question for the panel. Has any of you ever been in a situation where you need to put all your trust in God's ability to deliver you out of a terribly difficult predicament rather than, say, taking control and, and trying to find a solution yourself? Well, I wouldn't actually say it was a terribly difficult situation, but when I was in business, some people would realise that when you're in business, you have your highs and your lows. Sometimes things don't go very well. People don't buy your product or whatever. And, uh, okay, and some of the people who were in business, other business to me, were saying at a couple couple of separate times, I remember, things are really slack. And one thing I did was I kept the Sabbath as God commanded. And so I closed my business on the weekend. Other people in a similar business, would stay open. They were complaining that things were slack. And yet, 
it seems that God looked after me and my business was going quite well, even in those slack times. So I can give the, I could give God the glory there that he cared for me in times when other people were finding it they're going pretty hard. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. Lydia? Uh, yes, I uh, had many times in my life the opportunity to give all the control to God. I would like to mention just one, which was very important when I crossed the border. When I decided to cross the border, I was very young. I was 26 years of age, and... Um, I didn't want to do it on my own, but I asked God for his permission, for his passport. And I fasted and I prayed. And uh, God gave me a dream in which he was guiding me through this. And also a text from the Bible, which was a promise that secured my trip. Because uh, crossing the border was a very dangerous act especially for a woman, a young woman. And I felt at peace. I felt guided and I I felt uh, secure in God's hands that God assured me that uh, everything will go well. And I didn't have any emotions. I haven't been nervous. I just trusted him fully. This was only one time, but it happened quite a few times in my life when I gave to God all control in my life. Yeah, and Joe. Well, the question was, you know, have you ever been in a position or a situation where you've had to put your trust in God's ability to deliver you, right, Um, rather than having to take control, trying to take control? You know, some situations are beyond our control. Even influence, we, we, you know, we are just out of our depth. And once you've done everything that you can possibly do, there's something terribly liberating about leaving it in the hands of God, praying about it and letting it rest there. There's a peace and, uh, yeah, like I said, liberate a feeling of just release that you've done everything and now it's just in God's hands and leaving it there for him to deal with um, as he best sees or how he sees best. That's a good point. But you also bring out that you've done everything you can rather than just sit back and let God step in and do it all. That's right. Yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, Nick? I just want to build on what Joe's just saying, because I think that's very important uh, to follow what the Bible says. The Bible says, come to me, all of you who are weary or heavy burden, and I'll give you rest. It's a wonderful promise from God. And I believe each one of us here on the panel, and maybe my dear friend listening today, experience that in everyday life that uh, you really need to give control to God or give yourself to God and have that peace which Joe just uh, spoke about because many times you cannot change things. I'll give you very quickly one of my um, experience with God a bit more personal this time. I was in a situation when I gave my life to God you know I came into the faith to say so and uh, i married somebody who was in in the faith but uh, our marriage didn't go that well and uh, we faced a terrible time you know when we had to separate and it was a long process i waited for about 5 years trying to think to bring things together 
but didn't work out. And in my mind, as a, a young person and also in, in faith, you know, still not that solid to say so in many aspects, but I learned one thing that God has a plan for me, regardless what's happening in my life. He has a plan. And I decided to give it to the Lord. And in my situation was a, a case that, you know, how the Bible puts it. If you don't have reasons for divorce, then you cannot divorce. Now, in my case, there was reason, but was not known that reason, which I'm not going to go into details. I knew the reason, but technically I was not able to, you know, I, I could divorce, but not to remarry. And I gave it to the Lord and God amazingly sorted out for me. Nobody around in the community, and even in the church, believed that uh, I can move on in life. But I put my trust in God and I left it with him. And he sorted out everything in the way that I even myself, I never thought that he would do it in that way. And that's how God does. You don't need to have all the answers. When you give yourselves to God, you need to have all the answers. You need to trust in him. He has the answers already. Indeed. All right, now let's move on, remembering the theme managing in tough times. Joe, how do we strike the right balance between doing what we can, for instance, to be financially secure, and yet at the same time trusting in the Lord for all things? Can we become too reliant on all kinds of insurance policies and services to give us that peace of mind? And would we be able to have complete confidence in God to take care of us if suddenly all these securities would fall away, what do you think? Well, striking the right balance, I, I'm not sure that it is a balance with a bit of this and a bit of that, just enough to keep an equilibrium to hedge our bets. I mean, we have an example in the Bible, and I, I'm thinking of Nehemiah and the people of Israel rebuilding the wall. In the story, the children of Israel had returned from exile and they were facing hostility from those living around them and threats were made, efforts to intimidate. And they resented re Israel returning and they didn't want the city rebuilt and inhabited. And there's a text there that it says, before they know it or see us, this is the enemies of Israel talking, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. The Israelites could have said, look, there are too many issues here. I don't think it's God's will that we should go through this. Let's go back to Babylon. They don't. They knew that this was God's will. They were faced with danger, and this is how they tackled it. In verse 16, it says, Half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held the weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Now you might think, well, what's that got to do with the question? Well, here is, a, is an example, a biblical example, in doing all that we can to safeguard one's safety, financial security, future, and then when all is done, implicitly trusting in God because it says God, our God will fight for us. 
To be passive is not faith, but presumption. Yes, yes, we can become too reliant and trusting on our great investments, our insurance policies, our portfolio, our business savvy, our efforts. But there is a, a text that sheds light on this, and it comes from Psalms 127, 1 to 2. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. But even if things do go pear-shaped and having done everything that you can and done everything right, if things go pear-shaped, God is still there and will get us through whatever it is if we continue to trust and follow him. That's what comes to my mind, you know, when you ask that question. So essentially you're saying whatever situation you find yourself in, you can still have the peace of God. Absolutely. But also, you notice these people were doing the work of God. They were living their lives. They had a job to do and they were ready to support. You know, they were fending off disaster and danger, but they kept on doing. They trusted that God would fight for them should should it happen, but they took all precautions. They took everything. They didn't leave anything, anything undone or uncertain. They didn't just say, well, look, you know, we don't have to worry. We'll be saved. God will look after us. But yeah. I'm saying they were prepared for every contingency. And I think as Christians, I think we can't just um, be haphazard about things or, you know, presumptuous on God's protection or his blessing. We have a part to play as well. And yeah. then, of course, there comes a point where we cannot do any more. Mm. And then God is the one that looks after us. So that's an active faith, isn't it? A faith that that works. Yeah, and it's not a balance. Hmm. It's all, yeah, <laughs> all put in. Okay. Now, as a Christian community of faith, we are here to serve and give glory to God by the way we live this life, how we conduct ourselves, by the way we treat our fellow man. Our focus should therefore not be on the accumulation of wealth and possessions above and beyond what we reasonably need to sustain ourselves and to live a healthy and happy life. If, in fact, as Christians, we are convinced that the second coming of Christ is very near, how should it impact on the way that we live our lives, spend not only our time, but our resources and finances, especially when we consider that all that we have accumulated ultimately has no lasting value. Now, in his second epistle, Peter gives us an amazing prophetic insight into the last days and some sobering counsel for Christians who are looking for and longing for the coming day of the Lord. It's found in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 12. Len, can you read these verses or, or summarize them and, and share some thoughts with us, please? Well, I'm going to read some and summarize others. The third chapter of Second Peter is entitled The Day of the Lord, and basically it addresses what should be the focus of a Christian. Now, you've already mentioned part of this focus, but um, Peter in this particular chapter starts off and talks about people who scoff at the Christian way of life. And they say, oh, look, you say that the Lord is coming and so on and so on, but it hasn't happened and they scoff. And in this chapter, Peter says, now look, People scoffed years ago. Remember, Noah was preaching for 120 years that there would be a worldwide flood and people laughed at him. They were scoffers. And then the flood came. 
and Peter uses that as an example of what is yet to happen. And there's one thing he says with certainty, the day of the Lord is coming. And then he gives some admonition about how Christian people should live. And I'm going to read Second Peter 3, verses 10 through to 14. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So the text here addressed the question, what should be the focus of a Christian? And to summarize, I'd like to say, the focus of a Christian should be to be ready but when Jesus comes, so we can live eternally with our God. Now, from the book of Proverbs, and I think one of these texts that I'm going to read may have been mentioned last week. And this also is part of this summary of what should be the focus of a Christian. Lord, I have two things to ask of you. Proverbs 30. First, help me never tell a lie. In other words, I want to live a righteous life. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, huh, who's the Lord? And if I'm too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. So as Christians, we shouldn't be in the business of trying to get every material possession, all the money, etc. we can get. Instead, it should be our focus to be ready for the day when Jesus comes to have our proverbial lamps trimmed and burning, awaiting his coming, focusing on living pure and true and godly lives. I think there's very good advice for us, and I commend you read this for yourselves, listeners. It's Second Peter chapter 3. Indeed, I, I wholeheartedly agree, Len. And in view of the nearness of the Lord's coming, I think we could all agree that um, that has a, an enormous effect on how you live what's left of your life, so to speak. Time to simplify. Would that be uh, good advice? Joe, wanted to add something? Yes. In Hebrews, Paul t- Paul tells us, Hebrews 12, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. The longer we live, the longer we, you know, we've lived, um, we tend to accumulate and these things can slow us down and hamper our progress. I'm thinking of a, a runner, particularly a marathon runner. Do they carry a big bag with them when they run? Do they take a trailer with them? No, they, they trim off everything. So they travel very light and even their clothing is of minimum, 
weight. And yeah. so I think, you know, time to simplify, definitely. Time to offload some baggage that's just slowing us down, definitely. Yeah. Um, taking up huge chunks of our time to maintain, definite consideration. Absolutely. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Now, Lydia, uh, straight after Pentecost, when um, the power of the Holy Spirit had descended on the apostles and moved upon the hearts of the Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem, something quite extraordinary happened uh, in the thinking of newly baptized church members and how they helped each other manage the tough times that they were facing. We find it recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 47. What's happening here? Can you tell us? It seems as though if you compare what's happening there to how we live today within our Christian communities, that... Um, well, it's almost as though every man for himself today, whereas here what we read in Acts is an entirely different uh, scenario. Do you think the Christian church would be in a better condition spiritually today if it functioned uh, according to that model that we find in Acts chapter 2? Uh, or is it an unrealistic expectation that we should ever have this experience again? Could you tap into that chapter and uh, tell us what's going on here? Yes, their experience was that they had a big question in their minds and they said, what What can we do? Uh, and Peter was there among them and he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And uh, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. And later on in the, in the verse 42 of chapter 2, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is, means the doctrines, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Okay. And oh. um, it says that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number. And as I flip to chapter 4, so Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he was needed. Now, in our times as we are living now, it's it's different times than, than the times. Um, we can see here togetherness and they shared everything they had. Um, I don't know if it's possible in our times to, to happen exactly the same because... We live in a different society. Selfishness is uh, everywhere. And uh, the devotion of people, as it says here, to devote yourself to fellowship, breaking the bread, it means to share and pray 
together and especially prayer, which is the fundamental pillar and could happen for the Holy Spirit to be imparted to everyone. But as it says, everyone to be in one accord and one in heart and mind. Yeah, yeah, amen. Well, look, they weren't happy times for the early Christians either, were they? They weren't in, a, in an, an ideal situation there too. Um, their expectation was that the Lord would come quickly. But, um, yeah, if, if you compare that to the time in which we live in, um, as you said, Lydia, we, we seem to have it all. Uh, we've, we've become very selfish. And once you've become selfish, it's really hard to separate yourself from all the things you've accumulated, especially um, the, the finances that you've accumulated. And uh, at the same time, I can't help but think if you really do believe that the Lord is at the door, the second coming is at the door, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to that model and uh, and invest everything that we have in the Lord's work while we can? And we looked at that in previous lessons as well, prioritizing. Uh, simplifying. Now, when asked by a scribe which commandment was the greatest, Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Will, how would you apply this commandment in practical terms? What is Jesus really saying here? Well, can I read a text in Matthew 6, verse 24, which, um, which says, No one can serve two masters, you prioritize making God first, of course. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, notice that he uses the word mammon here, which just connects us to possessions and money. I think Len gave a good commentary here. Living our lives without becoming attached to the stuff that we have gathered around us. Loving God above ambition or our financial aspirations. Loving him more than any earthly goods and material gain will remain a challenge for us all, I think, Jerry. But we cannot serve two masters, especially in the time that we live. We believe that Jesus is coming, as you have said. But what does it mean really to love the Lord with all our hearts, minds and souls? I could unpack this at length, but let me just put it in simple terms. I mean, they've been talking about this for 2,000 years. I don't think I have time to. But let me just say, absolute devotion to God involves a submission to his will and the kind of closeness that the biblical heroes like Enoch, Joseph, and Moses left as an example for us all. It calls us uh, to an uncomplicated love and trust of God that will be our strength and stay for us. Uh, when faced especially with temptation and when we encounter those difficult situations in life, and it's that what we're talking about today, facing life's hard times, as one writer put it a long time ago, there will be an abiding, peaceful trust. I think that's uh, what Jesus is hinting when he says we should love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, all our mind, with all of our strength. Now, that is 
easier said than done, I'm sure you would agree, uh, to put that into practice, to come to the point in your life where you make that complete and utter surrender to God, the wholehearted surrender, because naturally we are inclined to try and stay in control. And, um, and it's quite a challenge to come to the point where we do actually relinquish that control fully and trust in the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength. Now, Ken, so now that we understand what God requires, how does it work out for us personally? Is it an easy thing to put into practice, considering that we're naturally inclined to be selfish, self-focused rather than God-focused? In 1 John 2, 2, verse 15, we read, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Can you comment on that, please? I think it is a difficult thing sometimes to put into practice because we're totally surrounded by all the glitter of the world and we're surrounded today, everybody, it's all me, me, me. And as we look around, so many people, they want stuff and they think this stuff brings them happiness and they want more fancy cars and more fancy houses and all sorts of stuff that really it's just stuff. And sometimes it's very easy to get drawn into this, especially if you have children as well. We're past that stage now, thank goodness, but when you have teenagers and they go to school, and they see friends who have got the latest iPhones or latest watches or goodness, the latest sneakers or whatever, we could really get drawn down that track. But when we read Matthew 24, which tells us the days we're living in and makes it very clear, I believe, that Jesus is at the very door of coming back, we have to realise that everything in this world is going to pass except the word of God. All these glittery things and and objects and things that people think bring them happiness don't really bring them happiness, or if they do it for a very short time, the only thing that really brings us happiness within and peace of mind is faith in the Father. Now it tells in 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lasts forever. So there's a very clear outline here, or I would put it as a warning, that you really have to focus, as we've been looking at today, focus on the Lord alone and put all these other things away. Yes, as has been discussed, we need certain things in life, and God has promised to supply what we need, not what we want. Amen. In that text that Ken read, he mentions, um, the Apostle John mentions the lust of the eyes, the lust of this and that, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Actually, lust is a driving passion as compared to a genuine need. So when a person has a passion for the things of the world, he's departed really from the Christian way. Yes, indeed. So, Nick, you wanted to make a comment as well here? Yeah, sure, uh, Jerry. This um, discussion today and the topic, it's a very uh, important one 
managing in tough times. Living in a Western world, we may have a different view about this. And many times we can excuse our attitude and our position because we don't know what that means to really live in tough times. We may have personal experiences ourselves, which can be tough. But what surrounds us, it shapes our way of being. And unfortunately, too often we fall into the trap of going with the flow, coping what other people do. We don't have that distinction to detach ourselves for the things which surround us and follow God. It was mentioned during this program that we may need to go back in like in those models like the disciples in during the early church. I believe God's people will face that again in a form or the other when they need to pull together and support each other and live together because there will be pressure on. I like to just uh, mention in regard to this, uh, you know, that passage in Matthew 6, 21, when it says, for your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I thank God that I'm not a person who love or trust in the money, but I'm a person who I like nice things. I like a nice car. I like a nice house. I like everything else which you love, maybe. But I thank God that I don't have attachment to those things. When I was 23, 22, 23 years old, I had my own house paid off. I had my own car. During communist time, I lost everything. I lost everything. And I started again from zero. You know what I thank God? That God is helping us. Now, we we may not have everything what we want, but we have everything what we need. In these days. And this is the lesson to managing tough times. My dear friend, I don't know what's your life, but there is a big pressure, peer pressure around us all. And I'm encouraging every one of us today here on the panel and maybe those one who are listening, try to come out of the square and see where we are and what God expects from us. Because this world is going in a direction where it's not the will of God, but God has a plan and a will with us. Are we going to achieve that plan or not? That's the big question. Thank you, Nick. Now, we're getting close to the end of the lesson, uh, but there's one burning question that I would like to ask um, Brenton. We do know from the scriptures that uh, there will come a time when no one can buy or sell. Uh, The Bible describes that time right before the second coming of Jesus. As a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, we find it in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Brenton, what kind of trouble are we talking about here? Is it emotional, physical, financial, spiritual, or, or a combination of all? Who involved, well, before, and most yeah. importantly, how and when can, do we need to prepare for this time? Daniel 12, verse 1 says, At that time, Michael the prince will stand up, and there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Standing up indicates that God on his throne has now reached a point where the destinies of all humanity has been decided, uh, Jerry. What does it mean in terms of buy or sell? You need to tie in Daniel 12.1, and I'd invite our listeners to do a little bit of Bible study on Daniel and Revelation. The difficult times that Daniel is referred to in Daniel 12 is, shall we say, enlarged, in Revelation 15 and 16, 
when we come to the seven last plagues and the issues that are going on. Who does it affect? It actually affects everyone, but it primarily affects God's people. Because in chapter 13, we are told that right at the end of time, a persecuting religious power will try and enforce its dogmas upon people. And those who aren't prepared to comply uh, will not be able to buy or sell. So if you were to ask me the question, what kind of trouble are we talking about? I would certainly say emotional, physical, financial and spiritual as a combination. Because really, in summarising what our lesson has been saying today, we will be totally in the hands of God at that time. We will need to be making that preparation now so that when that time does come where we can't buy or sell, God has promised he will look after us. He looked after Elijah. When he had to flee from Ahab, he'll look after us as well. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. God knows how difficult it is for fallen humanity not to get tangled up and overcome by the things of this world. The beautiful things that we see and touch and taste, they're all around us. The things that delight the senses. What safeguards has God given us to prevent us from falling victim to our own sinful desires? And as you said, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Just in closing, listeners, I'd like to leave you with these thoughts. The word of God is described as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We find that in Psalm 114, verse 105. This means that without God's word, that light on our path, we have to find our own way in the darkness. Throughout the Bible, we are presented with two choices. To live our life the way God knows is best for us, and to find our delight in the law of the Lord, or to live our life independent from God and choose our own way. God knows the end from the beginning, the consequences of our choices and all the days of our life, even before we were born. You find that in Psalm 139, verse 16. He knows that as we go through life, it's not all plain sailing. We have times where everything seems to run smoothly, but we also encounter times where the going can get really tough and it seems like the walls are starting to close in on us. How important is it then in preparation for those tough times that will surely come, as Brenton alluded to when he quoted Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, to put into practice now the things we have been discussing? Just a few quick, quick points to close. Number one, put God first. Make a wholehearted commitment to God and believe in him. Number two, trust in God's ability to provide for you. He is able. Remember, he made the universe. Number three, don't fall into the trap of materialism. If as Christians we truly believe that we are living in the light of eternity, shouldn't we share the blessings that God has given us with those who are doing it tough? rather than keeping it all for ourselves, or even worse, accumulating stuff that we'll soon have to leave behind anyway? Number four, recognize that you can't worship God and money at the same time. God alone deserves our worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, we read, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Don't let your wealth become what you worship instead of God. God's word, therefore, 
could be described as the wisdom of the ages, that if followed and embraced, will lead us to Jesus Christ, our Saviour, our friend, our helper, both in good times and in tough times. Denise, can I ask you in closing to uh, say a word of prayer for us? Thank you. Sure, Jerry. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have supreme regard for each one of us and we thank you that you know the end from the beginning. We also thank you for your Holy Spirit whom you so generously uh, offer to each one of us to help us uh, manage our pathway through life and we thank you for that. We thank you that you give us advice in your word for being able to navigate through life and we know that in the end, Everything works together for good to those who love you. So we pray that each one of us, those on the panel and those listening, will determine to trust in you and to uh, allow you to guide our lives each day. And we ask for the um, courage to do this and to put our full faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you everyone for uh, your time uh, together today and your input. Indeed, we live in a very tough times, um, individually or maybe even, uh, you know, generally, globally, we can see a lot of uh, unease and uh, a lot of things going on. But the good news is that there are rewards for the faithfulness. Those people who are faithful, God promised that Never leave them, never forsake them. And my dear friend, you and I would like to be in that category. May God bless you and please join us again next time because we are going to talk about rewards of faithfulness. Until then, may God richly bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.